The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king who made a marriage for his son. And he sent forth his servants to call those who were bidden to the wedding, but they would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell those who are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fowl. to his merchandise. And the rest took his servants and entreated them spitefully and killed them. When the king heard this, he was angry, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. Then said he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as you find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all, as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came to see the guests, he saw there was a man who had not on a wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, how did you come in here not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to his servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you now. We come to your word. We ask that at this moment, Lord, you would help each and every one of us here to tune our ears, to have ears to hear the message that is contained here the teaching of this parable, Lord. Thank you for its relevancy today. Help us to see that we're hearing the words of God. Help us to listen as we should to your word. And we ask, Lord, that by your word, you'd fill us with faith and change us, cause us to worship you and glorify you as we see how amazing you are. Do a mighty work this morning, we pray, through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, like in the Old Testament, maybe you'll remember this story, when Joab unleashed three pointy spears into the heart of Absalom when he was hanging on the tree from his hair, right? You remember this story? The hair of Absalom uh, was his vanity and his pride. And there he is dangling on a tree, his feet off the ground, and Joab unleashes three pointy spears into his heart. So here in the New Testament, Jesus unleashes three pointy parables into the heart of treacherous Phariseeism as it dangles from its self-righteousness, its self-righteousness being its demise. What's interesting in the Bible is that what men think is their greatest asset ends up being their greatest enemy, right? This is really important to understand in the Bible. What you think is going to get you into heaven is actually that which is going to get you out. What you think is getting you favor with God is actually that which is, getting, which is drawing his dis, disapproval and his, disple, his displeasure. When men pursue their own righteousness, and when men think that they're righteous, and that, by that they have a relationship with God and have established the favor of God, it's that very thing Jesus is pointing out in these parables that's their greatest problem. Of course, Joab killed Absalom in malice, and Jesus says these parables in love. Absalom dies easy, Phariseeism dies hard right? I mean, Phariseeism still exists, even though in the Bible we have the record that self-righteousness will bring you under the curse. All three parables that Jesus gives, and we've looked at two already, you remember the parable of the two sons and the parable of the vineyard workers, and now we're going to look at the parable of the marriage feast. And all three of these parables contain essentially the, the, the same essential elements are all here, but each parable focuses on something different. In the first parable, when Jesus spoke it to the Pharisees, what he was doing was exposing the Pharisees for who they actually are. They boasted to be righteous. Jesus showed them, you're actually not righteous. In the second parable, Jesus focuses in on what will happen to them. And you'll remember we talked about how resistance, resistance is futile. Resisting Christ, resisting truth, pretending you're something when you're not, is futile. Because God will expose you in the end. You'll ultimately be destroyed, and you may seek to destroy Christ, but he's indestructible. 
And in this third parable, what we're going to look at and what Jesus is going to tell the Pharisees is what's going to happen or what's going to result from what's going to happen to them, from their destruction. What's going to result from their destruction? Jesus tells them the kingdom of God will be taken from them and given to another, or as we're going to see in this parable, made available to all. Now this third parable is only recorded in Matthew. Um, Mark and Luke record the second one with Matthew, but only Matthew records this parable that we read this morning, and it happens to be, agreed by scholars, one of the most intriguing parables of Jesus, and we're going to see why. So we do well to pay attention to what Jesus has to say in this parable because he gives us an understanding and a warning. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to go through the parable and see what Jesus said, seek to understand it, and then at the end I'll apply, I'll give an application to us today. So verse 2, Jesus starts the parable like this. The kingdom of heaven is like something. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who made a marriage for his son. So Jesus wants us to watch in this parable the king. He wants us to watch what the king does, what the king thinks, how the king acts. And what we see in this parable, when we focus on the king, we learn quickly that the king represents God, and the parable is about God's action throughout the ages. The parable spans the ages, even though in the parable, of course, it's only a short time, it's an allegory of the ages, but not all the ages. The second parable that we looked at last week in, verse, in chapter 21, as I said, dealt from Israel's being founded in the land of Canaan to the coming of Jesus, right? There was a vineyard that God planted, Jesus says. And he took out the rocks and he built the fence and he built the tower and he, he hired it out to workers and they never gave him the fruit in season. Finally, he sent his son. And they killed the son, and so God destroyed the vineyard workers, right? So the second parable that we looked at takes us from Canaan all the way to Jesus. But this parable, on the other hand, takes us from Jesus all the way to Judgment Day. So this parable has to do with the, the age that we live in. This parable has to do with the time that we live in. It's relevant to us in our time. We're in this parable did you notice where you are in this parable? Maybe not yet. Do you see where you are in this parable? Well, the first obvious clue that the parable is from Jesus to Judgment Day is in verse 2, in the details given in verse 2. There's a king who made a marriage for his son. A king who made a marriage for his son. Clearly, this is a reference to Jesus. And there's no, there's no reason for this detail if it wasn't dealing with Jesus. If this was just a parable dealing with the law or Canaan again, then you wouldn't have to say it was a marriage for his son. You could have just said he threw a party. Or you could have just said, you could have went back to the vineyard parable. You said there was a man who had a vineyard and he, he let it out to workers. But there's a difference between this parable and the one we read before. The one we read before had to do with a vineyard and this one has to do with a party. See, in the one before, God is saying, come work for me. And they say, we'll work for you, and then they don't work for him. That's representing the law. But in this parable, we have a party, not work. Come to a marriage feast. Everything's ready. You don't have to do any work. Just come, right? I have provided something good for you because I care about you, and I want you to enjoy this time. You don't have to do any work. Just come and enjoy. So we see here, it's about Jesus, and it's about the gospel. It's not about the law. The king is not calling people to work God is not calling people to work. He's calling us to enjoy, which is what the gospel is. The gospel's a party. Did you know that being saved is, is uh, coming to a party, right? When you get saved, the Bible says the angels in heaven throw a big party for you. And of course, uh, the rest of your life, you can spend rejoicing in the Lord always. And then when you die, you have fullness of joy forevermore after that because you're no more molested by doubts and the devil and everything else. It's a party. You're not being called by Christ to work, right? You're being called by Christ to come and eat and drink and have eternal life without any money and without any price. That's what the gospel's all about. You know, sometimes people think the gospel's about your commitment to God, right? Sometimes 
Christian preachers preach and they say, come to Jesus, not just to be saved, but to serve him because it's all about serving him. Come to be saved. Uh, come to Jesus and commit your life to him and serve him the rest of your days. Now, certainly we should serve God, right? But that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is not a call to serve. The gospel is a call to be served. And we serve because we want to serve, not because that's what God's calling us to, right? Not because that's what, that's what the essence of the gospel is. Certainly God is calling for the people who know him and who love him and who serve him, but that's not the essence of it. You can't bypass the gospel. If you just go to the service part, you're bypassing the main point. He's calling you to a party. Do you appreciate that point, that fact? Just ask yourself, have you fully understood that God has ultimately called you to a party, to eat, and to rest, and to enjoy? Is that the way you see God? Or do you think, well, yeah, that's true, Eli, but you know, really deep down, it's just a bait so that he can get me into his service. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Ooh, come in and buy without money, without price. Now you're mine, right? But yes, he buys us, and yes, we serve. But do you really think, do you really understand that God is really just calling you to life abundant because he loves you? It's a marriage feast. It's the best kind of party there is, right? There's lots of different kind of parties, but the marriage feast is the best kind of party there is. Now, he says that he invites guests, and one might ask, well, how does this fit with the uh, theme in the Bible about the church being the bride, right? How does this parable fit with the theme of the bride? I mean, is there some people who are invited to the marriage of the Lamb and they're not the bride? They're just the guests. And the point here is that we can't push the details of the parable. Parables aren't meant to be, uh, you're not meant to, to fill every detail with meaning. Um, the parable's not perfect. It has a point. What are you supposed to say if this was about uh, the bride? Are you supposed to say, well, there was a son and he, um, he proposed to his bride, and some of them rejected, and some of them accepted, <laughs> right? It doesn't fit. I mean, it doesn't, the bride, the bride theme doesn't fit in the purpose that Jesus is trying to get at here. The purpose he's getting at here is that God invites people, and people re reject it, and so the bride theme doesn't fit. So don't push it too far. The point is that God is inviting men to salvation and eternal life through Jesus Christ. It's not about the law, but about his grace. Look at verse 3. The first thing that the king does is when he invites people to rest and when he invites people to feast is he invites not everyone. Okay? It's not a universal call. He invites those who were bidden. So basically, he had already invited them. He had already sent out the... Uh, the former invitation, and now he's sending out the invitation right before the feast is about to happen. And what this represents, of course, is the Jewish people, or Israel. And that the gospel proclamation was first given to them. The gospel was first preached to the Jews. Those who are close to God, right? I mean, in the parable, the king throws a marriage for his son. Who's he going to invite? He's going to invite his close friends. Or as we read in the Gospel of John, Chapter 1, he came unto his own. But what happened? His own received him not. Can you imagine? This is what this parable is saying. The guy throws a wedding feast, and who are you going to invite? Your best friends. And you invite them, and none of them come. They say, no, I'm not coming. Why? Well, some of them say, I'm too busy. One guy goes to his farm. One guy goes to his merchandise. In verse 5, it says they make light of it. What that means is they neglect it. They're careless about it. it it's not weighty. doesn't mean anything to them. They don't care. Others, it says, are hostile to the gospel. They're not just indifferent about this invitation. They don't like the invitation. They don't like the inviters. And they spitefully treat them, and they kill them. Who are, who are the servants that are being pictured here in the parable? Well, we have several. John the Baptist, 
Jesus himself and the disciples of Jesus that Jesus sent out to preach to Israel when he said, go not into the place of the Gentiles, but go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and preach the good news. Also, when Jesus ascended, he told the disciples to go and preach first at Jerusalem. So here we have John the Baptist, Jesus, and the disciples. This is their ministry to Israel in the first century. And it says here, why do they accept it or reject it in verse 3? Not because they could not, Not that they were blind, not that they didn't have feet, that they couldn't come. There was no money that they needed to bring, so they couldn't say, I'm too poor to attend. It simply says in verse 3, they would not. They didn't want to. I don't want to come. Ultimately, that's what happened. Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would gather you as as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't. You would not. You don't want to. And because you don't want to, your house is left unto you desolate. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, you will not come to me that you might have life. Right? You, won't, you don't want to come to me. It's not that you're incapable. It's that you're unwilling. Jesus told a parable, the prodigal son, to a Pharisee when they were at dinner. And because there were those in Israel who were accepting Christ, right? It wasn't all of, all of the Jews that rejected him. But those who accepted him tended to be the ones that were the undesirables, the ones that were, were seen as sinners. And the Pharisees didn't like that, and so they didn't like Jesus on that count either. But he tells the story, and in the story he says the older brother didn't want to come and party, right? So the father comes out to the, the older brother and says, Look, our, our wayward brother has, your wayward brother has come home. Isn't that a good thing? And he doesn't want to party. So what we find is there's people in this world, and particularly in focus here are the Jews in the first century, who don't want to party. Okay? Not just the Jews in this first century, but people today. They don't want to party. They don't like the idea of this gospel. Like God's just saying, come and eat freely. It doesn't, they don't care about it and they don't like it. They don't want to part. They'd rather have the commitment. They'd rather have, tell me what I can do so I can feel good about myself, right? Give me a bunch of rules so I can do them and think I'm better than others. And I don't like the idea of people who are, who are not worthy to go and celebrate with God and be in with God. People don't like to party. It's really sad. They don't, they don't, they don't get excited about that. They get excited about other things. Now in verse 4, it's, it shows us the goodness of God in that he doesn't outright reject them at first, right? They reject his invitation and don't want to come, and so he sends out more servants with more incentive. Behold, he says, open your eyes and look. Maybe you're not seeing how awesome this is. Maybe you're not seeing how awesome a party with me is that doesn't cost you anything. Look, I've killed the fatted calf. I fixed it just right. Maybe you're not seeing, but everything is ready and you don't need to do anything. I'm trying to make this clear. Just come and partake and enjoy. So he tries to bring him in, commending the feast and provoking desire. This is how it should be when we evangelize. You know, when we evangelize and when we share the gospel with people, we should, in a sense, get their saliva going in their mouth, right? Wet their appetite. Tell them how good God is and what eternal life is and fullness of joy in Christ, knowing that you're secure in him, knowing that his acceptance of you is not based on what you do. I remember on campus sharing this with a student and he was amazed. He said, you mean, I was sharing with him how forgiveness is totally free and I was sharing with him what I do when I sin, how I think about that and how I relate to God. And he said, you mean when you sin? And he had just sinned very badly and you could see it all over his face and he was so guilty but he was looking at me almost with he almost couldn't even open his eyes he was so guilty his eyes were like really heavy he's like you mean when you sin you don't you don't have to beat yourself up and slide down a ladder you just thank god that you're forgiven and just continue on as if everything is okay and i said yeah because everything is okay he's forgiven me he loves me he's accepted me accepted me he doesn't kick me out He says, I can see how that would be so enjoyable. (laughs) He's in misery when he said that, you know. That would be so wonderful. His his appetite was wet. 
you know? When we share the gospel, we shouldn't just come to people and say, believe in Jesus, right? Join the army. We should say, God loves you and has a feast for you, and you're totally unworthy of it. (laughs) And he wants you to come and partake and enjoy. Thomas Adams says, the wicked for the slight breakfast of this world lose the lamb's supper of glory. The sad reality is when men treat the gospel carelessly or with hostility, they're rejecting not only something wonderful, but they're rejecting someone wonderful, right? It's the saddest thing when you see someone reject the gospel because they're missing out on something so wonderful and someone so wonderful. The relationship that they've been always itching for, a God, a person who loves you freely and unconditionally. And to reject this offer in this parable and, in, and with God is not only rude, but it's disloyal. You see, the king is inviting them to a dinner. He's saying, come. And it's rude what they're doing, and it's also disloyal what they're doing, because to reject this marriage feast, to reject the son, is to reject the father. It's showing you don't care about the king. You don't care about God. You don't have reverence for the king. You don't have reverence for God. You remember in Romans chapter 1, the reason why the wrath of God is against the ungodly and against the sinners is because they don't reverence God. Do you you understand that the reason why people go to hell and the reason why God has condemnation for people is not just because they do this or that sin, but because they do this or that sin, which reveals their hostility and their irreverence towards God, towards the God who created them, toward the God who's patient with them, the God who's good. They rejected Christ. They put him to death. They put Stephen to death. They put James to death. They wanted to put Paul to death. This is how the Jews treated those who invited them to the feast. What was Paul preaching? He wasn't preaching that they had to turn from all their sins. He's preaching that they just needed to believe on the Messiah who came to die for them, that they could have eternal life. They wanted them to be put to death. Now, if the Pharisees, when they heard this, or when the Pharisees heard this, they probably thought these people were pretty low, right? These people were pretty disgusting. And we need to understand that the Pharisees would not have thought, and the common Jew in his day, would not have thought that they were like this. Just like in the last parable, they think, we wouldn't be so rude. We wouldn't be so disloyal. This is pretty low. We're not like this. But once again, we have here Jesus giving a parable that is naturally quite unrealistic to reveal something in the, spirit, in the spiritual realm that is perfectly realistic, right? And most people in this world, when you tell them these things, I mean, tell them, did you know that the way you are towards God is kind of like this? They think, I'm not like that. No way. I would never do that to a friend. Well, you're doing that to God. That's how God, that's how Jesus describes you when you reject the gospel. Anyone who rejects the gospel is like this. A dear friend and your king is inviting you to a gospel and you're ignoring it or you're hostile towards it. He's the God who's given you your well-being, your life. He's being patient with you. He's taking care of you. And you're rejecting what? A marriage feast. And for this reason, you're worthy of death. When you sin against someone who's good, your condemnation is worse, right? To sin against someone who's good, to sin against a God who's been patient with you, shows how truly wicked you are and incurs the great wrath. Why would you reject God? There's no good reason, but only your wickedness. The God who sacrificed so much for you. And so in verse 7, we have in the parable Jesus' explicit reference to the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 7. But when the king heard, he was angry, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up the city. Here's a description of God according to Jesus. God gets angry. God destroys cities. And God does it because he's just. 
Those who reject the gospel because of their sins and irreverence incur the wrath of God against them. The judgment of God according to the law. God said in the law, if you disobey my laws, then I will destroy you and kick you out of the land. That's exactly what happened in 70 AD because of the people's sins and of their rejection of his grace. Do you believe in a God of wrath? I mean, it's amazing that in in the same parable we can talk about his feast and his wrath at the same time. That's sort of the amazing thing about Christianity and what we believe as Christians is that we have a God who's just and he's not a pushover. God really punishes sinners. He really loves sinners and he really wants them to be saved. But if they reject the gospel, he really will punish them. And there's a warning to those who reject the gospel that although the gospel is a declaration of God's love towards you, don't just say, okay, great, he loves me so I can neglect the gospel. Right? Oh, he's inviting me to a wedding feast, therefore he wouldn't hurt a fly. If you hear about the love of God in Christ, it's that he's imploring you to believe so that you won't be damned. But if you reject him, you're already under condemnation. Verse 8, so far, the parable has taken us up to where the, the second parable we looked at last week left off with destruction. Remember, he came in the parable last, last week that we looked at and he miserably destroyed those wicked men. And now Jesus is going to turn to what happens next, the result of their disobedience and the result of their destruction, because now the king is presenting with a bit of a problem. I've made a wedding feast for my son. I've killed the fatted calf. Everything is ready. And hardly anybody's here, right? The problem is that there's a feast and hardly anybody is there. Those who were bidden previously have not come. And what we see here is that God wants his party to be full. God wants the kingdom to be full of sinners who've been saved by grace. And so he says here, the wedding is ready, but they who were bidden were not worthy. That means they were not fit to come. This is not talking about their merit. When we read the word unworthy, we often think, those who were bidden did not deserve to come. Go and find those who deserve it. Okay, well, if that was the case, then none of us would be here, and none of us would be going to heaven, right? The Greek word is not about merit, but about what is fitting. They weren't fit to come. He invited them and they neglected it. He invited them, they were hostile towards it. We can say the same thing today, that God invites people and those who neglect it and those who are hostile toward it are not fit to come. John Gill says, they were not only unworthy in themselves as all men are of such a blessing and privilege, but they behaved toward it in a very unworthy manner. They were unfit to come through their self-righteousness. And so God is saying, go out and find people who are fit to come. That is, go out and find people who are not going to neglect this. Go out and find people who are excited about my invitation. Go out and find people who don't think that they're so self-righteous. Go out and find people who have need, who realize they need my gospel. Fill my house with such people. And so where does he tell them to go? In verse 9, he says, go into the highways. The highways represent those roads outside of the city where foreigners and travelers uh, walk on and travel. If you go into the highways, you'll find people who don't belong to your city. And Jesus here is referring, of course, to the Gentiles. So he's saying, look, those who are bidden, my my own, did not receive. Go out to those who are not my own. Go out to strangers. Go out to foreigners. Go out to those who aren't my close friends, who I wouldn't normally have invited to my marriage feast. Go to the Gentiles. And what we see here is how, as Paul says, Israel's sin and rejection of Christ opened the doors for the Gentiles to come in. This is how it worked. This was God's plan. That he would invite the the Jewish people and the majority of them would reject it. And to fill up the rest of the house, he'd go to the Gentiles. Now we might think, well, that, does that mean that God doesn't love Gentiles? Are Gentiles just a plan B? 
right? Did he really just want the Jews to be saved and the Gentiles, he really didn't care, but he, it's just a pragmatic thing? Fill up the house? No, of course not. Because God is the God of the Jews and of the Gentiles, right? And the Bible tells us God loved the whole world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. God also promised Abraham that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It's just the way God planned it to be. God, in his mind, wanted from the beginning for all men to be saved and the Gentiles to come in. But he planned it this way. He planned to first plant a nation, make them his own, make them his close, invite them to come to the gospel, have them reject it, and then go to the Gentiles. It's his way, and it's his plan. And as we read last week, it should fill us with wonder that he's, that he's up to this. Matthew Henry describes the situation well. The offer of Christ and salvation to the Gentiles was unlooked for and unexpected. Such a surprise as it would be to wayfaring men upon the road to be met with an invitation to a wedding feast. Can you imagine if you're just traveling? Okay? You're traveling and you're in a foreign city. You're just passing through and you're at a Denny's or something eating breakfast. And there's no reason why you're, you, you don't belong to that city. You don't know anyone in that city. And all of a sudden you get an invitation to a wedding. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be interesting? <laughs> a complete stranger, an invitation to a wedding. Matthew Henry said, this, that's how it would be like. That's exactly what it would be like. Come to the wedding. Great feast prepared. You don't have to do anything. Just come. Fill the house. The king wants you to come. And that's what it's like for Gentiles. The God of Israel is inviting you to his kingdom. And his Messiah has died for your sins. Come and have eternal life, totally free. The, the, all the promises of the prophets is fulfilled. Come and partake. And like, what prophets? Oh, the prophets to the Jews. Really? What kingdom? Oh, the kingdom of Israel. What Messiah? The Messiah of Israel. Really? What God? The God of Israel. Come. Really? Wow. And the Gentiles come in excitement at this invitation. Henry goes on to say, the Jews had notice of the gospel long before, and they expected the Messiah in his kingdom. But to the Gentiles, it was all new, what they had never heard before. Isn't that amazing? And so here, here, here we are, 2012, and the church is full of Jews and Gentiles, and it's important for us to understand what the situation is, and how interesting it is, and how unusual it is that we're here at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the Messiah of Israel. Isn't that interesting? And this is how it is unfolding. That's how it is for those men. It says in verse 10 something interesting. So those servants went out into the highways and they gathered together all as many as they found, both good and bad. And so the wedding was filled with guests. It's an interesting phrase, both good and bad. How are we to understand the phrase? Well, what we're going to see here is that good and bad is not referring to their moral behavior. What we know in the Bible is that every single person is bad, right? There is none righteous, no, not one, according to their own works and according to their own behavior. So this is not some statement that Jesus is saying, oh, you know what? There are people in this world who are better than others. Okay? But what we'll see is that it actually, good and bad means just or unjust, as we'll see in verse 11 to 13. Just or unjust. In fact, this exact same phrase appears one other place in Matthew. And it's in Matthew 13. And you remember the parable of the fishing net? And so Jesus says, you know, the kingdom of heaven is kind of like this, it's like this net that these guys, they throw into the water and they draw forth fish, both good and bad. And they get it on the shore, and then they separate the bad ones out from the good ones. And then Jesus goes on, goes on to say, and that's how it's going to be on Judgment Day. That on Judgment Day, the angels of God will gather out of God's kingdom the unjust. So the good and the bad is not necessarily one person is better morally in their behavior than another, but that the invitation to come to God's kingdom, to come to the God of Israel, to unite themselves to the kingdom of God, goes out to all the Gentiles and lots of people come, even people who don't understand righteousness and the gospel. 
They don't understand the gospel. But they hear this thing, wow, I'm invited to the kingdom of God. Yeah, I want to be there. I had no hope before. Now I've got some hope. The gospel is preached to all and people get excited about the kingdom and they come and they don't understand who Jesus is and they don't understand the cross and they don't understand righteousness. In a sense, the gospel goes to the Gentiles and a whole bunch of people come in and a bunch of Gentiles become just like unbelieving Jews. That is, now these Gentiles are excited about the kingdom and excited about the Messiah and they don't get righteousness. They don't understand. They think they're in because they're righteous. You see what I'm saying? So the Jews who rejected Christ... They were excited about the kingdom of God. They were excited about the Messiah. But they didn't understand Jesus and that they needed righteousness from him because no one was righteous by their works. No one would be righteous by obedience to the law. And as we all can understand, since the gospel has been preached to the Gentiles, lots of Gentiles have become excited about Jesus and the kingdom of God and Israel, right? In fact, most of, the, most of the Western world suddenly became Jewish, right? Oh, almost overnight. Out with the paganism, in with the Bible, in with the Old Testament, in with the New Testament. Now all of a sudden we name our kids John and Andrew and we're excited about going to heaven and we're excited about Jesus. And yet lots of Gentiles, like the Jews who rejected Jesus, though they're excited about the kingdom and the Messiah, they don't understand righteousness So they want to come to the feast and they're not, they're not fit to be there. Verse 11, and we'll look at this in the next three verses. This now is judgment day. Jesus' parable is spanning from his coming the first time to judgment day. So really, where do we fit in this parable? We fit right now where the servants are going into the highways and they're preaching and people are coming in. That's where we fit. So that's what's happening right now. The marriage party's about to happen and people are being invited at this time. Lots of people are coming in. And what we learn here is that it's not enough just to come. You need to come with an understanding. Let me make that clear. It's not enough just to come to Jesus and to come to the kingdom and to want to come to this wedding feast and to come to church and think you're in. But you need to understand how to come. Because what we see here is on Judgment Day when the king comes and he sees the guests, he sees there's a man who doesn't have a wedding garment on. That is, he sees one of those bad guys, right? Because the, the servants brought in good and bad. And he sees one of the bad guys, and this one guy represents all the bad guys. And he doesn't have a wedding garment on, and I want to draw our attention to this, to the extreme importance of the wedding garment. In this parable, the wedding garment is probably the most important thing. Because you can't be saved without it. You can't come to the kingdom of God without it. It's indispensable to be in the kingdom of God. You have to have the wedding garment. And if you don't have the wedding garment, where do you go according to verse 13? Hell. Remember, this isn't a realistic parable. It's realistic in the spiritual realm. You would go to hell without the wedding garment. You will go to hell without the wedding garment. You have to have it. Do you have it? Don't just say, well, I've come to the kingdom. Isn't that enough? No. Do you have the wedding garment? Haven't I believed in Jesus? Do you have the wedding garment? Haven't I heard that the God of Israel is inviting Gentiles in? Yes, but do you have the wedding garment? You must have it. Now, obviously, the wedding garment is figurative. Right? Obviously, the Bible is not saying there's this special endowment that you have to have. <laughs> There's a special garment that you need to have and you need to be wearing it so that when you die and go to the kingdom of God, God will see you wearing it, right? We make him in the back, $39.99. <laughs> it's figurative, but what does it represent? Well, let me ask you, what is, an, what is an absolute requirement for entrance into the kingdom of God? What, what do you need to have and if you don't have this thing, you're out? I said, what is an absolute requirement? Well, 
from my Bible, there's only one absolute requirement, right? There's nothing else the wedding garment can be. There's not two absolute requirements. There's one, right? And what is the absolute requirement? One professor, H.A. Kent, writes it well. It represents the robe of imputed righteousness that God graciously provides to man through faith in Jesus Christ, right? So this isn't just believing in Jesus as the Messiah. A lot of Judaizers in the New Testament believed that Jesus died and rose again, and they still didn't understand righteousness. They said, oh, Jesus died and rose again, and he's definitely the Messiah, and he's our Savior, but you've got to still keep the law to be righteous. And if you don't keep the law to be righteous, you won't enter the kingdom of God. Well, what makes them any different than the unbelieving Jews? See, there's a lot of people in our world, not Jews, Gentiles, who claim to be Christians. They believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. They believe Jesus is coming again the second time. They're hoping to enter the kingdom of God, and they don't believe in righteousness through faith in Jesus. They think, well, you've got to be a good person, and you've got to do your best to keep in the commandments, and if you don't do that, you're not going to make it, because you've got to be righteous to be saved. That's the only way to be righteous. They don't understand. No, don't you get it? The Bible says no one will be righteous by keeping the law. No one will be righteous by trying to present themselves to God as moral. The only way you're righteous is if you acknowledge you're unrighteous and put your faith in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for you. He died for your sins. He died the righteous one for the unrighteous one so that you could become the righteousness of God in him. Right? The point of the Bible is you don't have any righteousness of your own. The Apostle Paul said on the judgment day, I don't want to be found having my own righteousness. I'll be like this guy who gets kicked out. I don't want to be found having my own righteousness. That verse confuses people who don't understand the gospel. What do you mean? That's the only kind of righteousness there is. No, I want to be found on judgment day having the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. You are not a Christian if you don't understand that. You can understand the kingdom. You can understand that Jesus died for you and rose from the dead. And if you don't understand righteousness through faith, if you are not right now righteous through faith, trusting in Christ alone for your righteousness and not in your ability to keep the law, you're not a Christian. No matter how much you sing about Jesus or care about Jesus sincerely, you're not a Christian. And Jesus or God on judgment day will say, this is a bad fish. This guy doesn't have a wedding garment. He's not fit to be here. He came in with the crowd. He was self-righteous. And he's out. This is what the robe represents. The robe is actually represented, or righteousness is represented by a robe in both the Old and the New Testaments. Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, and listen carefully, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Isaiah 61, verse 10. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 and 8, we have the same thing. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she, she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. So here again we see the robe is righteousness. And the righteousness of the saints, of course, is not their own. Who gets the glory in these two verses? Who are we praising? Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to me. <laughs> Let us, I will greatly rejoice in me. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, the God of my salvation. He gets the glory, friends, because he is the one who provides us with the righteousness. If you were to do the work, you would get the glory, and heaven would be all about you. It's God and not man that's in view here. Jesus Christ did the work, the finished work on the cross. We had the stain of sin, and he had the spotless purity, and his blood was shed so that though our sins were as scarlet, they would be as white as snow. 
Remember when Jesus, they put on the robe on him, the scarlet robe. He put the scarlet robe of our sin on him so we could put on the white robe of his righteousness. He did that because he loves us. The only reason you and I have any hope is because through the love of God, for you individually, he provided Jesus and you've trusted in him. Verse 13 shows us that obviously the man who gets cast out did not trust in Christ and come to Christ for his salvation. Because in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, whoever comes to me will never be cast out, right? The man may have thought he had come, but he hadn't. Otherwise, he would never have been cast out. And finally, in verse 14, the last saying here of Jesus in this parable His comment on the parable is this, that many are called and few are chosen. Now it's important to see that this saying is not simply connected with the incident of the man with the wedding garment right before it, but with the entire parable. Because in the the whole parable, many are called, aren't they? From the very beginning of the parable, men are called. Those who are bidden, the Jews are called. And they didn't come. And then the Gentiles are called. And many come but only few are chosen. So the entire parable is in view. And here we see, well, we, Jesus doesn't explain it, but he touches upon that great mystery of why are many called and why are some chosen? Why do some accept? Why do some not reject? Why do some come to Christ and wear the wedding garment of his righteousness and some come and don't? And of course, we only have a faint here echo of the teaching in the Bible on God's sovereign election of men. But the important thing to see here is that for all those who are not chosen, it's their own fault. Everyone who did not come to the feast and everyone who was not saved were guilty of not coming and not being saved. They made light of it, they were hostile towards it, or they came without a wedding garment and when he said, why don't you have one, he was speechless, he didn't have an excuse. Everyone on Judgment Day who is condemned and will go to hell will be speechless with no excuse because it is your own doing or your own undoing that sends you to hell. Because nothing lacks on God's part. He welcomes you and he invites you. It's only the unwillingness of man that causes them not to be saved. Many are called. That is, the invitation is for all. So will you come because you're called? The gospel invitation is still being proclaimed today. The servants are still going out and preaching. Come to the feast. God's prepared a feast. It's not a call to work. It's not a call to prove yourself. God knows who you are and God wants you to come. Whoever wants to, let him come and eat freely and drink freely from the waters of life. God has provided absolutely everything for you. Do you want eternal life? He's provided it. Do you want to not die and go to hell? He's provided it. Do you want joy? He's provided it. Do you need peace? He's provided it. Do you want blessing? He's provided it. Do you need righteousness? He's provided it. He's provided everything for you because he loves you. Everything you need is here. And you have an invitation. So my question to you this morning is, what have you done with your invitation? You've been invited to God's royal wedding. Isn't that amazing? Have you thought about how awesome that is? I mean, yeah, the parable is a king invites you to a wedding. That would be awesome enough. God invites you to a party. You personally, individually, each one here have You've been invited. What have you done with your invitation? Indifference? Uh, Doesn't matter. Made light of it? Hostile towards it? Put it off? Come to the party without thinking about righteousness? What have you done with your invitation? Are you clothed today in the righteousness of Christ? Are you perfect and acceptable in the sight of God? Have you forgotten that that's a requirement to be in the kingdom of heaven. And friends, if you today cannot say that you are righteous before God, because I know some people say, well, can you know? Yes, you can. 
The Bible says you can know that you have eternal life. And if you can't say today that you have the righteousness of Christ, that you're perfect and acceptable in his sight, then today, simply put your faith in Christ and just trust that he died for your sins and he takes care of your problem, your sin problem. Just do that right now. Why delay? And why not come to him and have that assurance and accept that party and that feast that he has for you? And I also want to say to you who can say today, if you can say, and I, I think there are a lot of people here today who can say this, if you can say today that you have righteousness, and you can say, yes, I am righteous in the sight of God. I have my wedding garment on. I'm totally perfect, and on judgment day, God is not going to cast me out. And I've been invited to his party, and I am ready to go. Then I just want to encourage you in this, and just think about the love of God for you and how he's provided this for you. And rejoice that you're righteous and welcomed in, never to be cast out. Because that's the impulse of life. That's what's going to motivate you every day. That's what's going to give you joy and peace. Knowing that you have every spiritual blessing in him because through the love of God and the grace of God in Christ, you've been saved. And you've got the brightest and most wonderful wedding to attend. I'll just close with these words. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are blown away that you love us and that you've invited, invited us to such an amazing royal wedding. And Lord, as this parable falls short, not only are we guests, but we're the bride. And we're amazed, God, at your amazing love. And truly, we don't even grasp how incredible it is. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to think about how wonderful you are, how wonderful you are our God, are, and what you've done for us. And Lord, help us to see that we are so beloved by you and that we have no spot or blemish on us because you've made us righteous and blameless in your sight through the blood of your Son. We glorify you and praise you and rejoice in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.